Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Mindy McGrath and Ryan Hummel to talk about what's trending now. Ryan, what headlines have you been following lately? Yeah, there's been a lot going on in the world of healthcare, but you know, the ban on surprise billing is one of those things that, you know, we've been talking about offline and you know, just to remind everyone, the idea of surprise billing kind of happens when <laughs> it's a pretty uh, literal definition. If you have an out of network provider that isn't suddenly and most of the times unexpectedly involved in your in your personal care, um, and that happens often, right? So if you have if if a patient or a family member is under duress, and they go to a hospital that you would assume or presume accepts your insurance, but maybe you get treated by a physician or a specialist or an ER doctor that doesn't. Um, many doctors then will bill those patients for those large fees. And we've heard stories over the past year, and there's numerous that have been on in the press. You know, coronavirus patients receiving surprise air ambulance bills for over 50 grand, right? Uh, for a flight between two hospitals while they were unconscious. Well, legislation nearly passed last December, and then it kind of halted um, due to some last minute kind of lobbying from some of the firms that own the medical providers that actually deliver those bills. But just recently, we saw that um, the Biden administration released an interim rule uh, that bans surprise billing and certain uh, out-of-network charges, which I mentioned before. And, And it goes into effect January 1 of 2022, which is very soon, you know, several months. And so there's there's things that have to get moving. And there's several elements to this, right? And, you know, it bans surprise billing for emergency services, right? And uh, I talked a little bit about that before, um, regardless of where they're provided. And that happens a lot, the emergency services, just because the way the health system in America is, many times the ERs and the emergency services are employed outside of the health system. So sometimes they are their providers and their and their um, insurances that they're covered, that cover the patients are different than what you might assume. Ancillary services are also in scope here. And you know, ancillary services are things like anesthesiology and other out-of-network charges. Uh, and the list goes on and on. And there's many elements to this that I, you know, highly recommend folks taking a look at in a deeper dive. One of the issues, and Mindy, I'd love your take on this, that I was wondering about is when there's a disagreement, because there's oftentimes a disparate opinion from the health plan and the provider on what exactly is owed and, and what would happen and what will happen when that happens. The key thing, right, is that patients are no longer going to be stuck in the middle. And so what happens is this rule really lays out that that it's going to be between the payer and the provider to figure out what the reimbursement's going to look like. And so payers will have the option to you know, reimburse in the, the first 30 days and or deny the service coverage. And if they can't come to some agreement on what that you know, fair and you know, usual and customary reimbursement might look like, then it goes to an arbitration process. And so this first interim rule doesn't really lay out how that dispute resolution process is going to take place, but I expect that we're going to see another rule shortly there, thereafter that spells that out more concretely so that payers and providers have some idea of how they can deal with, with these pretty significant bills, right, and, and get to meet in the middle somewhere on finding a fair way to reimburse for those services. 
I think this is a huge win for patients when we think about the high cost of care. Another key area of concern for patients often is drug costs. And I think there's been some interesting developments there around, you know, new ways to potentially drive those down through the retail setting. Absolutely, Jen. That's an area that I have had my eye on lately and um, news coming out of Walmart that they are really trying to tackle um, the issue of diabetes and how to make um, therapies that and insulins um, more affordable to patients. And so recently Walmart uh, teamed up with Novo Nordisk, who is a large manufacturer of insulin to private label their own insulin for their pharmacies that are in their retail centers. Um, you know, Walmart will tell you that when they look at their, their consumer base, that they have a very high percentage of customers anywhere in the neighborhood of about 13% that suffer from diabetes. In addition to the 90% of the US population that lives within 10 miles of Walmart stores, so they're easily accessible. So I think Walmart made the strategic decision to really try to disrupt what's going on in, insul in the insulin market because we know over the course of the last couple of years that this has been a really hot topic for consumers in the marketplace because prices of insulin continue to skyrocket year on year. And we've seen congressional hearings on it. It's made headline news. And I think the consumer uprising and Walmart thinking about this as an opportunity made a lot of sense for them to try to private label their own insulin at a much more affordable rate than maybe what consumers can get in other retail settings. So I think this is a big news item. I think it's disruptive and you know, wouldn't be surprised if we see other retail entities try to jump into this market as well, since it's such a significantly sized market. Eli Lilly's CEO responded to this news and said that he's looking for new ways to cut insulin prices in the face of competition from Walmart as well. He's very transparent and open that um, this he, he's on board with this idea of lowering the price. Um, and I looked, Eli Lilly's generic version costs nearly twice the price of Walmart's at something like $137 per vial. So this is creating churn and, and, and conversation. Um, and although, you know, there are advocacy groups that say this is not enough. Understandably, it is the, one of the first steps we're seeing where finally some movement on this really um, interesting topic is taking place in the marketplace. So I'm really anxious and excited to see what happens because of it. Insulin is certainly one of the more traditional therapeutics that we think about. On the flip side and coming hot off the press from our last personalization episode, is the news that interim results are in for Intellia and Regeneron's in vivo CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing candidate, NTLA-2001, um, in patients that have transthyretoin amyloidosis. So this is the first trial to show that CRISPR-based gene editing can be delivered systematically and performed in vivo, so inside the body. Um, so six patients were able to receive this first treatment for a genetic nerve disorder and safely had the DNA inside their liver cells edited. And this happened through lipid nanoparticles that dropped off a two-part genome editing system. So the first part was an RNA guide 
that was specific to the disease causing gene. And the second part is messenger RNA, which is something we've all been talking about over the past year um, since the tech has kind of been made famous by the COVID-19 vaccines. And that part of the nanoparticle system encodes that Cas9 protein and carries out that precision editing. Uh, so this is really impactful because other companies that are developing treatments based on CRISPR or similar genome editing technologies either performing the lab work on cells um, or readministering them into the patients and then injecting them directly into the target tissue. So this is really cool because it's first in vivo and the lipid nanoparticle two-part system also gives opportunities to reach disease states where you know, there are that, that lipid barrier that has to be crossed in order to get the gene editing to be effective. Jen, I think what this also speaks to, and we've talked about it in previous episodes, is that science is advancing in the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical space. And we continue to see more sophisticated science starting to take shape. And with it, I think there are some, some considerations, right, that the marketplace needs to start thinking about as these, these um, aspects of science advance and primarily around you know, how do you provide access right, to patients that may need this type of therapy? And then from a payer perspective, more specifically, is how does this get covered, right? And what types of creative maybe alternative types of financing need to be thought about when it comes to this type of science starting to really take shape in the marketplace. Uh, the other thing I think it, it, it speaks to is just the, the movement, right, in cell and gene therapy. We have seen some of that take place in the CAR-Ts. We are seeing, you know, some other therapies come into the market. And now CRISPR represents yet another aspect of cell and gene therapy and editing to to really have some success. So uh, I think this is the next generation of what we're seeing the marketplace move to. And um, there will be a lot of aspects of this that need to be thought about from you know, the patient and, and making sure that you have the right patient that qualifies for, for this type of therapy all the way through to ensuring that you have the right providers with the right skill sets to be able to disperse this type of therapy, and then the payer aspect of it to ensure that it's being reimbursed in a way that makes sense for what this type of therapy could actually mean to either a one and done, you know, upfront type of investment or a more curative type of outcome. You know, we're about to embark on some pretty incredible undertakings in, in healthcare in this world. And, and in order to get that right, we're going to need to simplify it so these health plans and the providers really understand what they mean so we can get the reimbursement right and actually operationalize it to your point, Mindy. So looking forward to see how we how we do that. Yeah. Ryan, I almost think to myself, like, is the technology, right, almost ahead of the marketplace, right? And is the advancement in science really going to be what kind of forces this healthcare structure that we have around reimbursement to reassess right, how things are done, um, because this is really sophisticated. And I, I don't think that the marketplace is actually ready for this yet. Um, while it's been talked about, maybe thought about, I'm not sure that structurally, right, our US healthcare system has figured out quite what this is going to look like 
as it starts to roll into the marketplace. So I love the possibilities that you talk about, but I'm also a little bit of a realist and a pragmatic person when it comes to some of the, the challenges I think that the market's going to face if the science starts to take leaps and bounds ahead of what, you know, operationally that payer market's going to be able to do. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and you and I could talk about this for a long time. I, I look at, you know, many of our clients and our partners across the, the country, you know, when you look at their organizational structure and the way that they go to market health plans, health systems, they, they still are operating in kind of a now world and maybe not organizing in a way that could be the tomorrow world and understanding things like digital health and gene editing. A prediction I would make is the companies and firms that are able to organize smartly around this new technology, not just CRISPR, but other amazing new advancements um, will win in the marketplace and help you know create healthier communities. Yeah, and I don't think it's just the payers either. Like I think about the, the biopharmaceutical and life sciences companies that are creating these technologies and you know, to a certain extent, the responsibility they will have also to collaborate with payers, to figure out creative ways, right, to ensure that there is access to these therapies to the right people at the right time in the right place. So it's not just a payer operational or structural issue. I think it's a market issue within the U.S. healthcare system. And I think the other side of that is really important for life sciences companies to act as a, a play, you know, a partner and a leader in, in figuring out a way to get there um, for these types of, of science, you know, and therapeutic areas that are coming to market. Whether it's fast moving scientific advancements or policy changes, we know the one constant in the healthcare industry is change. So I can't wait to hear what we are talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health Podcast and explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.